You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Episode 78. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. This episode is going to take a little bit of a twist. Now, the title is a little bit misleading, kind of, sort of. Is CBSA above the rule of law? It's not designed to be clickbait. (laughs) Well, obviously, this is a podcast, so you're, you're not clicking. But online, people may very well be looking at the title and thinking, interesting. Well, the reality is, it's an honest question. And I invited Argavon Drami, a well-respected Canadian immigration lawyer in Ontario, to share some insight on some of the recent experiences we as immigration lawyers have been having dealing with the Canada Border Service Agency. And as a former officer myself... And you'll see throughout the whole podcast, there is a very neutral tone. So we do not want to be (laughs) making any of the border officers feel like we're attacking them personally because that is not the case. We're so appreciative of all that they've done and all that they're doing, just trying to navigate these really crazy, turbulent, uncharted waters. But with the CBSA... Uh, nationally, you bet we can be critical. And in this episode, we're going to reveal some of the things that are creating the most frustration for us. And uh, and Argavon makes some wonderful points um, that you just have to listen to with respect to, well, in one area, the lack of transparency from the CBSA. But with that being said, I'm not going to spoil all of the really, really interesting things that we're covering in this episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'll let Argavon bring them up. And let's jump right now to that interview with Argavon. Well, welcome back, everyone. I am here with my special guest, Argavon Jarami. She is the founder and senior counsel at Jarami Law Professional Corporation, which is a full-service immigration law firm in Ottawa. So this is all that she does all day. So she's one of the uh, the, the amazing lawyers that um, that I've been able to cajole and and twist their arm enough to come join me, and and it's great to have you here, Argavan. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. All right. So let me give uh, our listeners a little bit of background about you, so that they know that they're dealing with someone who is highly experienced in this area, and uh, someone that when we're through this. They're they're definitely going to want to you know whether they're a lawyer or whether they're um, an individual who's just been well screwed over by the system. Uh, you are the champion of the individual, and so I'm super <laughs> super excited to have you here. Okay, a little bit of background on Argavon. So she completed her JD and her Master's of Law at Osgood Hall Law School, York University, and was called to the Ontario Bar in 2007. Um, she worked at the Ministry of the Attorney General and the Department of Justice before transitioning to private practice in 2011. So DOJ, 
Tell me about that. What was that like working uh, for DOJ? It was fascinating. Um, so after I finished my LLM, that was my first um, sort of position uh, as a lawyer. And it was the public law sector. So a lot of uh, uh, human rights, constitutional law, privacy law, that kind of thing. Um, and I also then uh, transitioned to uh, foreign affairs legal services. Um, and I was there about a year but I had also applied to clerk with the Court of Appeal. Um, and so I uh, took a year and went to the Court of Appeal to clerk with Justice Evans. Um, and it was at that time um, that I started really thinking about litigation. Um, Department of Justice was really a perfect um, transition and a starting point. Um, but, you know, the kind of work that I wanted to do was more um, with uh, individuals and communities and uh, refugee claimants. And so that was a private practice that I needed to transition to. That makes perfect sense. I think you've already mm -hmm. answered one of the questions almost that I'm, that I was yeah. prepared to, to ask you. We'll see. We'll see if it, if it fully mm -hmm. covered it. Okay. So continuing on. So you, you uh, had the opportunity working with, um, in Justice Evans and, mm -hmm. uh, and since basically founding your firm in 2011, you focused pretty much exclusively on immigration and refugee litigation. So yes. that's been your that's been kind of your bread and butter. Yes. Yeah, so initially actually I practiced both criminal law and immigration. And um uh, and I really loved actually the intersection of those two areas. Um, but uh, it was sort of the time when all of those changes were being made um, in the refugee area and with Prime Minister Harper. And I started to be uh, more and more passionate about uh, refugee law. And I had done quite a bit of um, immigration refugee work at the Court of Appeal with Justice Evans as well. And so I decided that uh, really to uh, have the most impact and uh, contribute the most, I should focus on one practice area um, and delve into it and really, um, uh, you know, advocate for refugee rights um, and do what I could to um, help reverse some of those changes Very that cool. had been implemented over time. And, you know, yeah. it took a while, actually. So it's been actually 10 years. This is sort of the 10th year. Um, of Jeremy Law, it will be by August, exactly 10 years um, that I've had this practice. And so now, exactly, we just do exclusively immigration refugee law. Um, and uh, we love it. Awesome. That it's is fantastic. so cool. And that, Argavon, is one of the main reasons that I wanted you to come join me on the podcast and plug the heck out of you after it's over. You know, there's a <laughs> lot of lawyers here you know, in, in the country who are extremely passionate about what they do. And I don't think they get enough uh, recognition and notice. So, um, yeah. And Thank you know you. what? It, and it's the people who give, right? That's Those are mm -hmm. the ones that I really, really want to come join me. And when I think about Thank your you. involvement with the CBA, um, aside from all these other things that you're doing, but when I think about your involvement with the CBA, you know, you've spent an unbelievable amount of time. You've been extremely active as an executive member on the national section. And uh, and I can tell you, I've been so grateful of all that, that you've been doing. It's not always Thank easy you. being involved at the CBA, a large organization mm -hmm. like that. Not, it doesn't always, um, you know, allow for us to be as responsive and, and uh, you know, mobile, I guess you could say, when it comes to responding to issues. But, uh, but yeah, the involvement that you've had with that has been, has been great. 
All right. Thank so, you. All right. Jumping through, obviously, if people want to find Argavon, they can look in the media too. You know, she's been interviewed. She's been quoted, Globe and Mail, National Post, Ottawa Citizen, and uh, as well as publishing in journals and, you know, presenting at all of our immigration conferences and things like that. And even a few guest lecture spots at the University of Ottawa, which is really cool. Um, you're supervising a, a bunch, a nice group of, of uh, articling students and, and, you know, lawyer, yes. uh, lawyer perspective candidates, I guess you could say. How's that? Has that been? In the, it, it's been fantastic. Um, so uh, right from the start, I had, I took on two articling uh, students every year. And uh, I usually take a couple of summer students. Um, this summer, uh, I am uh, supporting the uh, Ottawa uh, student support initiative, which is um, really to support the students who haven't been able to work. Um, they get uh, a fellowship of $5,000 um, with, uh, you know, 350 hours, I think that they have to work. Um, and so I am participating in that process. And I find it a very, very um, uh, rewarding and engaging and I'm learning with them and they're, you know, working together. And I also, of course, have, um, we're about uh, six lawyers in total. So um, there is that uh, element of um, mentorship and, um, you know, little families, sort of like our extended yes. family that uh, that we have, which I, unfortunately we miss right now. We're yes. just interacting, interacting um, um, by Zoom all the time. Mm -hmm. But uh, nonetheless, uh, it's, uh, it's very important to me to have that. So uh, the students are uh, very critical to our practice, very valued. Um, and uh, we really um, are a big fan of continuing to have them every year um, working with us. And a lot of times I hire them back when mm -hmm. I can. Uh, you know, definitely they're my first picks um, yes. when we need to fill a position. Always try to um, go to them first and um, give them the, the first opportunity. Very cool. All right. Well, we've gone through all of the professional side of your background. And I want to take a little pivot to your personal side. So you've indicated here that you have uh, an amazing husband here and two children and Bambi. So tell me about yes. Bambi. Bambi is wonderful. He is 10 months old now as a miniature poodle. Um, we got him uh, last year, um, Thanksgiving. And um, it, it's been just a wonderful journey for us. The kids are, my children are um, 15 and 12. So it's a very good age to be able to help mm. and participate. Um, but, you know, I didn't know that I would fall in love with this little dog. Um, and it's just uh, amazing. It's so wonderful and fun. And it's, you know, taking me out uh, two, three times a day and playing with him and all of that. Uh, I think, uh, as I was saying before, I think all lawyers should have uh, their own pets and bring them to the office too, <laughs> as therapy dogs. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah, I can tell you wonderful. the, that's so cool. Well, the Holthy family has jumped on the dog bandwagon and we have ourselves a little <laughs> Labradoodle, Labradoodle puppy that we got just Oh, I guess it was probably about three weeks ago. So he's still really quite Wonderful. little and it's just been so fun for the kids. And I've got kids that mm -hmm. are right around your age. Uh, some are a little bit older, but they're 
they're all taking a turn, which makes it a whole lot easier for dad in these early puppy stages. Oh, yeah. But uh, oh, no, yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And definitely now that mm. I've moved my office back to my home and I actually did that in December, uh, I made it a virtual firm back in December. You know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, we have brought the dog home to the office here as a therapy dog, yeah. at oh, least yeah. for me, it's after wonderful. a long day trying to navigate, mm-hmm. you know, this craziness that we're dealing with, with immigration. And, uh, oh, yeah. I think we all need a little therapy as we're trying to figure out what the heck is going on with these travel restrictions with our clients mm-hmm. that are just co- coming to us, you know, with tears, you know, they're just sobbing because they're separated from their family and uh, I've got yes. a very good friend here in Lethbridge that I've grown up with all my life. And he's married to just a wonderful Peruvian woman. And uh, just because they hadn't gotten their acts together and gotten the sponsorship applications going, she would travel all the time. She's a professional from Peru and and they're mm-hmm. separated. You know, he can't get there. She can't yeah. get here. And, you know, the response, as, we, as we've heard, is basically too bad, so sad. Right. Just yep. uh, suck it up. Mm-hmm. Now is not the time, which is my personal favorite social media plug that the CBSA is pushing out. And so oh, yeah. let's um, so let's shift now. So we're going to get right mm-hmm. into the meat of our discussion. We've had a pretty good wind up and now we're going to. Uh, yeah, we're going to make the pitch, I guess, as uh, mm-hmm. as it <laughs> as 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 lawyers do. Um a couple qualifiers as we move forward. Obviously, we're both involved with the CBA, but this has nothing to do with yes. the CBA. So this is all in our personal yeah. capacity as, as immigration lawyers who are passionate about what we do. Myself, as a prior border officer in a prior life, um, I, have, uh, I have somewhat of a sympathetic tone to the officers and in no way or shape or form uh, do the comments that we have today are directed at any individual officer at all. But the organization as a whole has got some huge issues. And that's what we want to talk about today. And that's kind of why we entitled it the CBSA, is CBSA above the rule of law? And there's, Mm -hmm. uh, as Argavan will share as we go through this, um, there's been a number of issues, including just challenges with uh, with transparency and, you know, them not being willing to really tell us uh, the basis upon which a lot of their decisions are being made. And so as we jump into this, obviously, COVID is playing a huge role in exacerbating all of these issues. Um, But let's talk about this you know, this rule of law. And uh, yeah. why don't we specifically talk about just, well, why don't we start with the, the, the Canada-U.S. agreement? Yes. So the Canada-U.S. agreement uh, that everyone's probably heard about by now, um, around, uh, I believe it was March 20th, that was the first time we heard that there would be this agreement um, that, uh, you know, uh, non-essential um Visits uh, would not be permitted. Only, uh, you know, critical um, essential commerce um, would take place. Um, and then there was also the discussion about uh, the refugees, and um, uh, initially that they were going to be all quarantined. But then um, uh, there was a reversal in that, um, uh, you know, that they would only allow. Um, uh, they wouldn't allow. Initially, it was they wouldn't allow them at all, but then it was changed that they would allow those who came through the Safe Third Country um, Agreement uh, would be permitted and um, irregular, otherwise irregular refugees uh, that didn't come through official ports of entry would not be um, permitted to enter. And so we really wanted to see um, what 
is the text of this agreement? What is this agreement called? What are some of its details? Um, just to read it and um, just to understand it. And, uh, you know, that's what transparency and open government requires. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what we're used to. Right. That's, uh, that's the whole, and so, you know, that's the platform so, upon which the liberal government campaigned. Right. Open government. Abs absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, absolutely. And so, um, you know, there should be no secrets between, uh, you know, uh, lawmakers and citizens and, you know, people whose rights are directly affected want to know um, what are the fine details uh, of what what's been contemplated, right, by the decision makers and by uh, uh, by individuals who crafted those details. So um, so then we reached out, um, we asked for this, uh, whether it was through the media, um, through different channels, through different organizations. Um, and of course, everyone was told that uh, the text of this agreement could not be shared. The details couldn't be provided. Um, and so it's been three months now, and this agreement has been extended. It's a monthly thing. Uh, it was uh, on the 20th of May and then um, our 20th of April and then 20th of May which now it's enforced till around June 20th. And so um, we continue uh, to make efforts. And um, I also actually put in an access to information request, um, which today came back saying uh, they couldn't disclose it, uh, asking for a 180-day extension because uh, the, its disclosure would interfere with the operations uh, of the CBSA. And so this is this is where we're at um, in terms of um, that issue. Uh, I mean, we continue to push, um, and the rule of law, though, um, is not to be uh, kept a secret. Whatever it is, uh, that's the whole point. It needs to be transparent for people to have notice, so that they know uh, what's being done and and how. Uh, people's rights are affected, in particular, uh, in this case, the refugees who are turned away to the U.S. were concerned, in particular, because the U.S. has been um, deporting uh, certain refugees during the COVID crisis, including children. And so we don't know um, if Canada is somehow uh, being uh, complicit in that by turning away those refugees where there have been no commitments made for their safety. Um, those um, concerns have been raised by many organizations, include, including CARL, including C the, this CBA, um, including, uh, you know, um, Amnesty International and other um, refugee organizations. And um, so that that information is not forthcoming. Um, and despite media coverage of this issue, we just don't see any movement. Yeah. Uh, so that's another element of like the lack of responsiveness to uh, the dialogue because media coverage is a form of dialogue. We want to express the concerns and we're dialoguing with individuals, the, the, the policymakers, the ministers. Um, and where there is no response and um, you know engagement. It's also um, of concern because it's a uh, it 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 illustrates a lack of accountability on top of uh, on top of it because they're just sort of saying, well, you know, we don't. It, it comes across as we don't care, mm -hmm. um, which hopefully is not the case. Yeah. But that's that's the perception. That's the sentiment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I agree. And you know, when you get back to the refugees, one of the things that I found very interesting is just how the Roxham Road issue was was handled, 
And I think mm -hmm. uh, viewer uh, listeners to the to this episode who are not familiar with that situation, one of the direct impacts of these orders in council and and this agreement was the turning back of refugees who are coming through um, through Roxham Road. And um, you know, unless they, you know, well, even in that case, a port of entry is where they'd have to make their claim, right? which then mm -hmm. the safe third country kicks in. And that's what, uh, you know, it's interesting to see what the Liberals have done with that. It's been quite convenient, <laughs> if you will, uh, to do that mm -hmm. when they say our doors are open to refugees, to, to claimants, whether you're coming outside or in. I'm always curious how an individual from outside of Canada is actually going to fly to Canada and make a claim. So generally speaking, it's the yeah. refugees from the U.S. that are coming in or refugee claimants. And now mm -hmm. that avenue is is it's closed, at least for the time being, because mm -hmm. they're in the States. And unless they have one of, the, you know, fall under one of the, ex, uh, the, um, the exceptions, it's, it's just not happening. So it'd be very interesting yeah. to find out, you know, a little bit more about the decision-making. Yeah. I mean, the concern there too, is that um, just because they've uh, technically uh, closed the border doesn't mean that uh, the flow of people will stop. People will still find ways to get through, but mm -hmm. there will be riskier paths uh, dealing with people smugglers, um, you know, putting their families at risk. And then when they make their way through, of course, they're not going to um, be, uh, in, if they're not intercepted, they are not going to be reminded and, um, uh, you know, uh, compelled to comply with Quarantine Act requirements. Um, they may stay put for a while before before they've come forward to do an inland claim uh, that the, they would have put others at risk potentially if they had, uh, you know, themselves um, had some health risks or been exposed to the COVID, um, uh, the coronavirus. And then Ultimately, when they do come forward, there are also risks of potentially, because of the fears of having done that, is to um, potentially misrepresent or uh, not disclose their true identity. So there is a whole host of compounding, uh, uh, you know, concerning issues um, that arise uh, from this policy, and it's not a well-founded, well-thought-out policy decision um, because it essentially. Um, you know, there will be people who are still, especially during the summer months, um, making their way through. And we're definitely going to be, um, you know, finding out about those cases in due course. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm sure that the ministers are, are aware um, of those concerns. Um, and I don't know how it's being weighed um, in the short term, but as hopefully the numbers get better, um, we are really, really hoping and pushing for the reversal of this um, this this policy because it's just not um, it's not a sound policy. Yes. Do you know Argovan what's actually happening to people who who try to cross? At, at Roxham? Um, they're they're turned back. Mm -hmm. um, they're not allowed to make their claim, and also they're not given a pra. Is my understanding? Because mm -hmm. normally, if you come through irregularly, you're not eligible for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, then you can make uh, the, you're given a pro, right? You can do a pre-removal risk assessment. So uh, that uh, is it's not um, something that, uh, from my understanding, is that they're not even being given a pro. They're just not able to make their claim um, to even make that assessment that they're not eligible to be then given a pro or to be, you know, they're just not, they're turned back before they're ever able to make their claim. Um, and this is a clear 
you know, um, turning them back in this manner is clearly putting them uh, to the, sending them back to the U.S. where they should be able to make those uh, risks, um, you know, uh, make their claim in that country. Otherwise, again, as I say, it's not compliant with our international obligations. So, um, so that's uh, that's really the concern. And so when I when I received this ATIP result saying it's going to interfere with the operations of CBSA for us to disclose this to you, it, the first thing that went through my mind was why. Like, why would you, would what you're doing if there is no, um, you know, issues with the rule of law and it's complicit with it, then you would disclose it. And that's what concerns me with it. When I say that they're, you know, um, that they seem to be above the rule of law, meaning that, you know, it's it's saying that somehow we are justified to act outside of, of uh, the, the realm of transparency and... <clears throat> Perhaps, you know, in a pandemic, we need more transparency, not less. You know, it's a crisis and people, major decisions are being made by governments. And the citizens need to understand those, especially vulnerable claimants, um, individuals who are also impacted by uh, the COVID crisis, individuals who in the U.S. with the numbers being as high as they are, um, are more at risk than any, you know, it's the number one um, country right now in the world with its numbers, right? Yes. <clears throat> yeah, I agree. So it's those are all very big um, concerns. And so the rule of law needs to be strengthened uh, during a crisis and uh, supported. And, uh, you know, it's concerning to set this kind of a precedent yeah. as well um, in a Canadian government where we are, a democratic country, we're a constitutional country, and you know the uh, constitutional principles of the rule of the rule of law and democracy. These are un, are unwritten constitutional principles as well that were recognized by the Supreme Court in the secession reference. So it's bound, it's binding um, on everyone, including the CBSA. Yeah, I agree. And that slippery <laughs> that slippery slope is something we just want to avoid. So on the on the topic of uh, a lack of transparency, I guess we we're not only concerned about the refusal to release the information regarding the the Canada U.S. agreement, but also this mysterious little policy that they this bulletin we now know that was uh, mm-hmm. distributed to their officers to help them determine what was considered to be. Um, non, you know, basically non, uh, discretionary or non optional. I love these double negatives. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, basically making their own determination as to whether someone was eligible for entry when mm-hmm. in many cases, IRCC had pre-assessed that situation and the individual found themselves getting turned back at the border because of this added test. And, uh, right. you know, and, and they refused. We asked repeatedly in the same way to CBSA to, mm-hmm. to at least give us an idea of what the officers are relying upon, this mysterious document that they keep referring to when they, you know, when they send our, our clients packing. And, um, and so we requested, requested, and, and nothing happened. And mm-hmm. um, until, until what, Arkafon? What did, what did our fine colleagues eventually have to do? Well, they finally had to file a judicial review in which, uh, you know, uh, the, the Department of Justice um, had to disclose 
the policy manual on which uh, their client had relied on to make those decisions. Um, and it, it's very um, puzzling, quite frankly, why they would have kept this document um, hidden or wanted to keep it a secret or, you know, it would have only enhanced uh, their own operations for um, immigration lawyers, for, um, you know, uh, individuals who are traveling to Canada to be aware of the existence of this manual and what it says um, and to be aware of the consequences of coming to Canada um, and potentially being turned back. The scenarios that have been listed in uh, that chart, there's a chart in an annex that sets out uh, numerous different scenarios. Well, someone could have looked at it and said, look, that scenario, that's mine, uh, my situation. You know, I wouldn't be able to get in. Uh, so I shouldn't um, make my way through or I should make further inquiries or perhaps I should consult with a lawyer about this. Yeah, and exactly. rather than, uh, you know, uh, it's a clear um uh, you know, uh, I think it's a breach of their legitimate expectation that they had when their visa was issued based on the fact that uh, the information and the facts and the evidence they provided, um, you know, when they presented their case and they had a, a visa and they had the green light to be able to come to Canada. And so uh, if they had disclosed this from the get-go, it would have saved a lot of um, uh, you know, questions, um, the inconsistencies that it gave rise to, the confusion, um, it's unnecessary. And we're, again, not operating in, uh, you know, a closed, um, I don't know, communist or, or country where, yeah. you know, uh, even, th even then, I mean, I never, it's not justified in any context, but particularly in, uh, you know, uh, our system of governance. And, uh, you know, we, we want people to know what are the policies that apply? And that's why they're enunciated and, um, you know, communicated for people to follow them. That's what the rule of law is. It's communicated so people have notice of their rights so that they know um, how to govern themselves properly and how to get advice. And so it, it's really problematic, again, on multiple fronts to try and keep a document like that, which is at a critical time at a critical time when people are, um, and we're talking about, again, separation of individuals. We're talking about very, um, you know, situations of pregnant women coming or where there are very, very serious consequences, not just uh, emotionally, but practically of how to deal with the fallout of being turned back. And not disclosing this is just, um, it's just a very, very, uh, it's puzzling, it's disappointing and and confusing. Um, so uh, I don't know, uh, but I just, again, hope that, uh, you know, we don't um, continue to see this kind of uh, trend of non-disclosure mm -hmm. moving forward. And, you know, Argavan, I've always felt that my role as an immigration lawyer, you know, I still sometimes feel like I, I wear my officer hat uh, periodically when I'm, when I'm working with clients and I think, okay, I'm not going to push the envelope here. Um, you know, you, you've got a very, very low likelihood of success and make sure that, you know, them paying me is so far down the radar of, of factors I consider as compared with, do they have a legitimate chance of success here? And so mm -hmm. whenever I'm assessing, especially in light of this world now, I'm advising all of my companies, and I'm sure the CBSA is super happy, 
just don't travel unless there is a, or, or don't even, you know, try to push it. Cause at the end of the day, you know, we do not know what the answer is going to be. But in terms of that magical little secret bulletin, the thing that frustrated mm-hmm. me the most is like you've identified, I see our role as immigration lawyers is in some respects to help the CBSA with their job. And if we can yeah. help clients to understand the decision-making basis um, that they're following, we can then in turn kind of preempt people <clears throat> and help Absolutely. them to understand what what you know they're realistically going to experience versus having someone travel who, you know, because of whatever belief they've had, whatever representation that's mm. been made by another government department that they've relied upon, um, you know, we can help them to know that, well, it's goofy as it sounds, now is not the time, right? Which is right. what CBSA has right. been trying to push But making social. informed decisions, mm-hmm. making informed, you know, uh, decisions based on all of the, the facts and uh, the policies and the, the law that applies to their circumstances, you know, all of it, uh, it it's uh, emanating from the um, uh, the the um, um, order count ordering council mm-hmm. that um, um, was put in place and the interpretations of that right and so these different departments one other element of this is that they need to respect each other's interpretations and communicate with each other and have some consistency to avoid um, these issues right so that's another element of it too is that uh, potentially it seems like a kind of a uh, almost like a turf war yes. of sorts like you know we are interpreting this this way um, and then if you read the manual and see their interpretation which is um, in my view quite narrow um, and uh, you know using essential for example or non-essential as opposed to the exact wording of yes. non-discretionary and so you see that it's very um, narrow and and it's taken uh, the human side out out of what's essential, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's there is no human uh, no scenario where it may be essential for someone mm-hmm. who is, uh, you know, pregnant or who needs to be with their spouse during a, a pandemic. That is another scenario of what constitutes essential, but it's nowhere. It's taken. Uh, sucked out of that manual and it is just the commerce and the movement of, uh, you know, the, the critical um, supply chain. And it's very, very, it's reduced to that where, you know, you are um, on the IRCC side, you know, we are talking about human beings also where these are individuals and non-discretionary in a family context in a crisis, in a situation of a pandemic, means much more than what's been uh, iterated in this policy manual, right? And so hopefully the courts will shed some light because of that judicial review that we mentioned is now before the court. Um, But, you know, immigration lawyers have to, um, you know, look at this and really bring back, um, you know, that element of, uh, the human side of this and why there are scenarios uh, in which it is essential um, for families to be together. And those, um, uh, the policy, the the program delivery instructions that have been put in place um, are coming through with certain objectives which were iterated in the, in the act, 
which are binding. Again, it's not as if the Quarantine Act is operating in some kind of a, a vacuum, yeah, silo. right? Mm -hmm. So it's got to be, uh, you know, in um, put in the context of um, of uh, the Immigration Refugee Protection Act and those objectives as well. Yeah, and I'll also add on the most important, I guess, uh, factor that the CBSA doesn't talk a lot about when they're making these determinations is that we have a policy in place um, for self-isolation when someone comes. And, mm -hmm. you know, in my mind, a lot of the, the human factor and the compassionate factor, you know, I think that's where there's room for them to move when there is a good plan in place when people arrive. Now, yeah. yes, it's it's kind of a, a voluntary, I guess, it's, it's a declarative statement and this is what I'm doing. But in my mind, I, that's where I see the harshness of their decisions maybe going too far. And uh, we look at the examples and those who are listening here, if you go, I think it's the 27th of, um, of May today, we're recording this. The 26th, I recorded a video with, um, that's on the Canadian Immigration Institute YouTube channel with my friend Kyle Heinemann, practices immigration out in Vancouver. Um, we actually pulled up that directive and went through it. The examples, pulled mm -hmm. out the high points. You know, no, you can't go to shop for designer clothing in Canada. I'm sorry, from the US. Well, hello, that's... You know, that's a no-brainer, right? Of and then, course, and then of you, course. And then you have examples of individuals that are not granted entry for, you know, uh, grandparents attending, you know, the birth of the, a child, a grandchild, um, even funerals. And, and you know, and, yep. so, and to some extent, you know, you, you try to put this into context and a lot of these are, are on the polar ends. It's in the middle that we're having the problems with. Um, but you, right. you, you take the funeral situation. Yes, the, the large gatherings are restricted in provinces. And yes, they're starting mm -hmm. to open up a little bit. And so that makes sense. Um, you know, religious activities and things like that, they're, you know, because of the social gathering restrictions um, and, and the self-isolation, those, those factors play a direct role. And, and I can, you know, those, those decisions make sense. But at the same time, it's just the rigidity of it. And because your situation mm -hmm. looks like these, this fact pattern, Therefore, I'm not going to listen to anything that you say. You yep. are just not, yep. I'm sorry, I'm just not letting you in. I don't care if IRCC has approved your visa. I don't care if you already have an ETA, yeah. if you've got even a letter, you know, that, that authorizes yeah. you to travel. Um, you know, the, now is not the time. Um, you were not here previously before all this started. So what's the urgency now? You can go back, you can wait. And when this clears up, you know, and just add one more level, um, and I've mentioned this in previous, I think, podcasts, but when I worked on the border, it was 2002 when the G8 summit was happening in Calgary. And during that time, uh, we were uh, sternly admonished not to be the officer that lets the terrorist in who blows everyone up. And so you can imagine with that kind of a mentality, you did not want to be that person. So you were constantly looking right. for reasons to turn people back if you had even an inkling of suspicion that there could be some issue. So the, uh, you know, so the, the party bus that was running on McDonald's um, <clears throat> fry oil coming up with protesters in it. Oh, I smell marijuana on your, you know, on your clothing or something, right? There would be a reason because you didn't want to be that officer. Mm -hmm. And I think to some yep. extent that also applies here. And, uh, you know, I, I know uh, one of our ports of entry uh, in southern Alberta here, you know, they've flat out told us in some cases, we're just not letting anyone in, <laughs> you know, and you talk about yeah. above the rule of law. And so... Yeah, so when you, you factor this in, I think that's playing a little bit of a role in their 
<clears throat> I guess they're they're fettering their own discretion when it comes to the uh, these these scenarios that they have provided in yeah. this uh, this uh, appendix B, and so yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah. I, you know, and I, I feel mean, for them. I feel for the officers. They're not, you know, they're not legally trained. They're they're trained to to be the protectors. And you know, as our as our yeah. curve flattens, I see the CBSA, you know, patting themselves on the back. You know, we did our job. We kept the country safe, right? And, yeah. Uh, and so, well, I mean, and of some that. of this goes perhaps, uh, you know, to the training that they receive, um, and you know, in the time uh, period. I mean, we talk about a very quick. Uh, time period between when this whole crisis emerged and, you know, they had to, um, this whole policy manual probably was put together very quickly and they were uh, passed on to them to apply. And they have, uh, you know, within uh, how they view their role and um, wanting to be, uh, you know, fulfilling that important function, um, there is some of that, uh, you know, um, legitimate uh, you know, concerns about, yes, you know, we do want to ensure that things are done and they have a role to play. And that's all well understood. But perhaps if we take it a level higher and say, okay, well, what kind of a orientation or training or, you know, uh, how much of that was um, provided to these officers and to what extent um, were they also sensitized to what the IRCC officers are doing and, uh, you know, how much communication was there between these um, uh, policymakers or officers and, you know, coordination and uh, to be able to ensure that um, there's efficiency and consistency in the application of the rule of law. Because each time that, um, you know, we don't do that, there's inefficiency, right? People coming at the border, being turned away, being trying to challenge it, trying to go back and trying to come and um, uh, try again to come back. And of course, we know now that they could potentially even face an exclusion order um, if they come back, um, uh, if they were directed back and they, they come back again, because um, that's something that uh, you know we need to advise them on, um, that they need to be ready to come that first time with all their evidence and because of that risk. Um, so, you know, um, and then, you know, this is not to really... Um, to put this all on CBSA and the officers per se, but I think it's more looking at it as an organization and how uh, it operates and the governance and the, the you know the the whole implementation of their uh, their strategy and uh, uh, handing down of this policy and being told that this is not to be disclosed. Somebody told those officers mm-hmm. higher up, right? And they are following directions and instructions that are given to them. So I don't really blame, I don't see this more um, on the front lines. These officers are doing their jobs, right? But we want to be constructive because we want to engage. And it's our role to be constructive and communicate those concerns because we're all at the end of the day, like we're not on opposing sides, right? Right. Like we're trying to work together um, and that's how we are going to better the situation for the people, for our country and whatever that we're trying to, um, you know, to, to survive the situation that we're in. Right. So those are the, those are the, the concerns and that's what we do, whether it's through our uh, organizations that we're active in or through the media, because we are 
uh, engaging in that dialogue that I mentioned is that we want to provide the feedback and we want to make sure that um, we are heard at the end of the day and not shut out, right? And it is for CBSA to listen. And that's part of engagement too, is to listen and to be receptive of, um, of those um, uh, feedbacks that are provided because we're not fighting, we're not fighting. We're, we're, we're providing those suggestions and feedbacks to enhance their operations, right? So that we have fewer cases. Funny enough, as immigration lawyers, you think, well, if there's more cases and whatever, but no, because we don't want there to be uh, these situations of unfair, um, you know, having to go to court and expedite a judicial review in a time of crisis to, to say the obvious, right? Yeah. To get to the, the commonsensical, uh, if we can communicate and uh, problem solve, we can minimize uh, those those uh, litigations or those uh, steps that that don't need to be taken, right. um, that, which that is inefficient and costly and, as well. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yes, that's uh, the, absolutely that's that's totally correct. Okay, so we've kind of had a pretty good conversation here. We're, we're kind of coming to the end here a little bit. One of the mm. things I wanted to ask you, which we actually didn't talk about before, but it's just kind of come to my mind. So we, as lawyers, are very, very good at pointing out what we don't like about things. So mm -hmm. if you were put in the position of the minister, <laughs> mm -hmm. what changes would you make right now to help resolve a lot of these issues that we're dealing with? And I know you've kind of hinted at it already, but what kind of things yeah. would you, you know, would you, would you do right now to just uh, to make things better? Uh, I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, prioritization of the goals, right? So you want, you have certain goals and that's essentially maybe to minimize the number of cases or the risks that are the Canadians are exposed to and so on. Well, yes, that's one priority. But I think the prioritization of those core goals with a better balancing of the impact, right, on uh, the people affected, and is it necessary to be, you know, and so recalibration, I think, is a bit of uh, an art here in these times, um, looking at it. I mean, we understand the seriousness of the situation, but perhaps uh, communication with other departments is key. I've mentioned that um, collaboration and communication, um, consistency, but also recalibration just to just to resituate ourselves and, and um, not forget that we are talking about, after all, human beings yes. who are impacted uh, in very, very difficult circumstances. And, um, you know, there may not be that discretion that you see. And so essential discretion, not discretion in these words at the end of the day. Uh, if I were the minister, we need to bring a bit more of a human face uh, and touch to the situation um, and kind of align those goals with the objectives um, which are iter um, iterated in uh, Immigration Refugee Protection Act. And so because, uh, you know, flow of people is going to be there, I mean, we're not going to be able to completely stop it. Um, but what other measures you mentioned about uh, quarantine act and, you know, being able to, um, you know, uh, implement 
uh, maybe a better system moving forward, um, if you are going to ease up a little bit, well, then what can be done to put in place other measures that minimize risk? Um, so it's it's just about problem solving and thinking through the options and recalibrating, I think, is um, uh, really important. But, but maintaining the channel of communications, both internally and externally with us, too. Um, so I think that's very, very important with the stakeholders, the feedback um, to contrast this, for example, with the IRB, which I'm also very involved with. I'm involved in, um, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, because I practice immigration law and I talk to those um, decision makers and they, I think, are very much willing to listen and uh, engage and so that is, I think, a good example. Uh, I see the IRB uh, really wanting to to go, go out there, listen, uh, think about options, form working groups, um, and work together to come up with solutions that, that work, right? So those are some of my sentiments in terms of um, moving forward um, the wish list in a way. <laughs> that's awesome. <clears throat> that's a, yeah. that's a, great, a great place for us to kind of sign off a little bit. <clears throat> um, yeah. One of the things I think you, you, you're probably on side with me when I say this, we, we do want to extend, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a significant um, expression of gratitude to everybody that's on the front line. So whether you Absolutely. are CBSA officers at the ports of entry, whether mm-hmm. you are on the front lines, <clears throat> excuse me, in our health, in our health system, at the hospitals, um, we are so grateful of, of those who put themselves on the line at the front to, uh, to help Absolutely. us in this battle against uh, COVID-19. And, um, uh, but, but each of the things that you've brought up, Argavon, are 100% um, valid and they make perfect sense. And I don't think anything that we've said here is is shocking to the CBSA or, or you yeah. know, the head officials and and uh, for sure even the officers on 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 the border. And I think that communication, that collaboration, that openness is all that we're asking for. And uh, exactly. if that can happen, exactly, a lot of this is going to wash away. It doesn't cure all Absolutely. all ills because we will always have uh, things that we don't necessarily agree with. But that that mm-hmm. ability to collaborate, that bil- ability to communicate, is what helps to to manage this. So, thank you Absolutely. so very much. And in turn, it brings appreciation. So mm-hmm. from our end, you know, obviously we are grateful and we do appreciate. And that you know, all of the the engagement we have today, the discussions, none of it takes away from um, our appreciation for for what they are doing. And uh, you know, again, nothing against the individual officers or you know. Um, um, because we we continue to be um, supportive and and grateful for um, all of their good work. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, thank right. you so much, Argavan. I really appreciate it. Now, when someone who feels they just need that lawyer to help them get through this, <laughs> what is the best way for people to reach out to you? Well, obviously, they can um, go to my website, uh, Jeremy Law. Um, they can um, call. All the contact information is there, um, okay. email addresses and everything. Um, you know, we're always there to help. And I um, uh, would love to hear from colleagues, from clients, from individuals, and um, continue what we do, um, help people and engage with people. And uh, and uh, and I'm also very grateful for, for being uh um, invited to be um, here today with you to discuss this important issue. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. And we'll make sure we put all of those uh, those contacts and that information in the show notes for the uh, podcast episode. All right. Thank you so much, Archivon. It was uh, wonderful thank having you. you. 
Take care. Wonderful to speak with you as well. Take care. Well, I'm so, so grateful for Argavon taking some time to come and join us. Her insight was really, really exceptional. It helped me as a Canadian immigration lawyer to really formulate some of the some of the things that I've been thinking about myself as I've been trying to advise my clients on how to navigate this these these crazy border restrictions. And now they're all there for a reason. They're all there for a purpose. And but it's how the law is being applied by CBSA that's really caused a lot of the struggles for many of us. It's been so difficult over the last few months trying to understand whether or not people can travel or not. Now, as of today, when we're, we're getting closer to, to releasing this episode, it's about a week after I actually recorded it with Argavon, um, there have been some changes. There have been some, uh, some evolution with respect to the, in, um, the reunification of families. And there's been a few notifications that have come out today, June the 8th. However, there is still much ground that needs to be made. And we'll just see how this plays out. But I, I'm really, really grateful for Argavon. You can see it was an awesome episode. And, you know, she's the first time that we've had Argavon on. And definitely I'm going to have to have her back. It was a great, great episode. I thought it was very, very uh, measured. It was very respectful of the CBSA. But at the same time, it asked some really, really important questions. And I know Minister Blair, um, we just had uh, our national, uh, I guess, online not conference, but webinar with the CBA. And Minister Blair was kind enough to come on with our national chair, Ravi Jane. And if you as a lawyer have not yet subscribed to that, um, those series of webinars that the uh, CBA's national immigration section has put out, you need to go do it because that's the only place you're going to access the interview that Ravi had with, uh, with Minister Blair. So check it out. And I also want to encourage you once again, if you have any topics that you think would be really neat to uh, discuss here, this is an open platform, an open forum for awesome lawyers who are doing everything they can to just give back, give back their knowledge, uh, give back their experience, and just have a desire to help. That's what it's all based on. Go over to iTunes, leave a review. It helps this podcast to get noticed as well as Spotify and everywhere else where it is being launched to. Thanks so much for listening. This is Canadian immigration lawyer Mark Holfe wishing you guys all the best as we all navigate this crazy world of COVID-19. Take care, everyone. Oh, Canada, greatest country in the world. We want to share the richness of your soil. Place I love my home and native land. We welcome all, and with you we'll stand. We'll set you straight with law, policy, and practice. Here on the Canadian Immigration Podcast. your phone.